As soon as the two police cruisers and fire truck slid to a stop in front of the meanwhile, with lights ricocheting off the surrounding buildings, Carla and I skipped out the back. When we pulled out of the alley next to the bar, a dark sedan turned into traffic a few cars behind us, so I knew we'd been made. It took about 45 minutes of driving around Detroit, finally entering and then exiting a parking garage I knew would give me enough of a head start after emerging from because Carla's Honda was quicker around the corners and over the speed bumps than the boxier car. Carla had her hands planted on the roof and her feet pressed against the dashboard. Jesus, Morneau, you trying to flip this thing? Even in this shitty foreign export, I'd have to take a corner sharper than that to flip it, Carla. Once we lost our tail, we headed to my place, where I changed and grabbed some clothes for the road, then went to her house. Oh, this really chaps my ass. Carla was angrily grabbing underwear hand over fist, shoving some into her bag while trying to move the rest from the floor into a dresser drawer. Whoever tossed her place did a fine job. Every drawer was emptied. But what had my immediate attention was the sheer volume of underwear the woman owned. I won't claim to be a connoisseur of ladies' underthings, but even to my untrained eye, it appeared she had an undue amount of the lacy stuff. Now's not really the time for spring cleaning, Buttercup. Just get what you need and let's go. Yeah, easy for you to say. Your panties weren't pawed through by who the fuck knows. Carla ripped three shirts from the closet, sending their empty hangers into a cranky, clanking refrain. I watched her from the doorway of her bedroom, with a bag full of money slung over my shoulder. I didn't think it was a good idea to leave it in the car. And since we wouldn't have time to find a new hiding place, it was going with us. If we were tailed, we're going to have to shake it before we get on the interstate. And there's an eight-hour drive looming ahead of us. So if you're done griping about how violated you feel, let's go. Carla kicked a pile of her clothes across the room and knocked over a freestanding lamp in the process. Damn it, Morneau, I get it. This is my fault, I fucked up. Can you make an effort to stop rubbing it in? I've had the same shitty few days that you have. She yanked a pair of jeans from the pile that had been dumped on her bed, balled them up and shoved them into her bag. Trudy died. We killed a couple guys, and now Muggs's bar was almost burned down because of me. If it makes you happy, I feel like shit, okay? I feel like shit, and I'm fucking chagrined. Shit and chagrined. I like it. Let's make that your motto, or mantra, manifesto, whatever. Just so long as you move your ass. I grabbed the bag she just shoved a pair of high heels into and zipped it up. Woman, we're not going dancing, so I'm not sure why you need the fancy shoes. The opening strains of our little opera were tentative compared to the unspoken hostility we cultivated after driving around Hamtrak for 20 minutes to ensure we weren't being followed. By the time we were finally on the interstate, the ride ahead of us was a little over nine hours. Through a tacit agreement made sometime after the first hour, when I was forced to listen to Erasure for 97 miles, but before Carla started painting her fingernails with a bottle she dug out of her purse, and I thought it would be funny to jerk the wheel a few too many opportune times, we mutually agreed to stop halfway and find a room. Carla must have been off her game 
because she waited in the car while I checked in. When I came back and tossed a key into her lap while dangling the other one on my finger in front of her face, Carla looked down at hers, then back up at mine. Good idea. You were really starting to get on my nerves. She got out of the car, pulled her bag from the rear, and stomped off to room number seven. I had number six. All we'd be sharing for the night was a wall. Exactly the amount of load-bearing beams covered in drywall that I required between my secretary and me for at least eight hours. When I emerged from room six the next morning, Carla was leaning against her car with a cup of coffee. Don't suppose you got me one of those? I tossed my bag and a duffel full of cash, which I'd inspected the previous night, into the back seat of her car. She motioned to the cup holder between the seats where another coffee sat. I'm not a complete asshole, Morneau. Thank you, Carla. If we keep going like this, we'll be on track for a very pleasant day. I climbed in and started the car. Carla got in the passenger seat and slammed the door, spilling a few drops of coffee onto her white t-shirt. She scowled and wiped the mess with a napkin from the glove compartment. So if I keep kissing your ass and doing things for you, our day will go well? I checked my watch. Well, looky there. Our first wobble off the rails. And we've only been on the clock a minute and 47 seconds. Right on schedule. She tossed the wadded napkin over her shoulder into the back of the car. Are you implying that I'm a constant thorn in your side? Carla, you're a thorn in my side, my ass and the stress-induced goiter that's probably loitering around my not-so-distant future. Carla kicked off her shoes and put her bare feet up on the dashboard. Maybe I should quit. I jerked the car back into my lane and looked at her. Wait, what? Who said anything about quitting? Carla rolled down her window a few inches, and a burst of cold air filled the car. Well, if you're so miserable working with me, I should quit. Carla... I was miserable long before I met you. Sure, your personality regularly amplifies that misery to an almost unbearable level, but you're also kind of entertaining. I mean, what working stiff gets to listen to his secretary take a shit in the woods? It all evens out in the end. Now quit feeling sorry for yourself and brace for whatever it is you want to avoid dealing with when we get there. There turned out to be a general store run by an old Indian dressed in jeans and a flannel shirt. Thick shards of silver ran through his long black hair, and he had the most interesting aura I've ever seen. A cloud of every color suffused the air around him, each crest perfectly in proportion with the other. A mosaic of hues running one into the next. What it made me think of was symmetry, that he was emotionally symmetrical. Carla told me her mom and stepdad didn't have a phone and that if she ever needed to show up, she'd been instructed to stop at the general store, give the owner her name, and he'd give her directions. I'm Lucy Rios. The Indian didn't blink until she said, He'd let us in. The man smiled slightly and furrowed his brow, three rolls of skin puckering between mischievous dark eyes. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. He let us in, knows where we've been, and his octopus is garden in the shade. 
When I doubled over with laughter, Carla took a swipe at me. Ha! You're tone deaf, princess. Man, that was bad. I hope he's not judging on execution. The Indian chuckled, but there was no sound, just his shoulders hiccuping up and down as he slid open a drawer behind the counter and rummaged around. He pulled out a book of matches, handing it to Carla. Directions are inside. Tell Mona I said hello, and that her pumpernickel is in. We were almost out the door when Carla turned around, pulling out her wallet. Hey, I could just get that bread for her while I'm here. The Indian shook his head. I don't think she'd like that. Mona likes to buy her own bread. I leaned back in and grabbed Carla's elbow. Come on. I don't think buying pumpernickel in a small town we're not familiar with is a good idea. Carla was shoving her wallet back into her purse as she got back into the passenger seat. Oh, man. I hope that doesn't mean she's out. I could really go for a joint right now. The directions scrawled inside the matchbook led us 20 miles west into a deserted area with flat terrain that butted up against giant rock outcroppings on either side. Carla got quieter the closer we got to our destination. Tell me. Tell you what? Carla stared out her window. Tell me what's bugging you about the trip that has nothing to do with those papers we're looking for. Carla pulled down the visor and inspected herself in the mirror, stretching the skin above her cheekbones, worrying the wrinkles and lines with a finger, and poking out her lips like women do when they get sucked into the distraction of what they think the mirror image should be versus what's looking back at them. She snapped the visor back up. Mom is what's bugging me, Morneau. I don't have any other relatives, and we were never that close. It would sure be nice to see something different this time. Something that tells me I still have a root out there somewhere, a connection to something else. But I don't expect that to happen. So what's really bugging me is that once we leave, I have one less thing that I had when I walked in, even if it was just a little hope. Hope is a fool's game. If you never hope, you don't begrudge the crap when it floats by. You just expect it. But at least the good stuff burbling to the surface once in a while is a nice surprise. I pulled the car to a stop and both Carla and I stared out the window at her mother's home. You suck at this. Don't do inspirational anymore, okay? It comes off clumsy and depressing. From now on, when I make the mistake of sharing my feelings, just nod and smile. If you occasionally pat me on the back while you're doing so, it'll be a hell of a lot easier to pretend that you're not a disingenuous asshole who doesn't give a shit. Uh, okay. I had no idea what I was agreeing to because I was distracted by what stood before us. It looked to be about a 20,000 square foot hole in a sandstone mine, fronted with a few hundred sliding glass doors welded together with an off-kilter design so that the collective effect was a bunch of glass doors hanging in mid-air at different heights. 
A row of solar panels hung above the massive glass frontage, tilted up just enough to look like an awning over the glass menagerie. A row of wind chimes were strung along a tight piece of twine tied to eye bolts and screwed into the sandstone on either side of the massive glass opening in the rock. One of the sliding doors at the bottom opened, and a man walked out to greet us, followed by a woman who appeared younger than he by 15 years or so. She was short, like Carla, with nondescript features. Her flowered skirt and sweatshirt suggested she may have thought about putting on something that painted a prettier, immediate visual than what she and her daughter had shared between them. But by the time she got to the top, she realized it was an exercise in futility. I got a distinct note of practicality in the colors around her. She had that same underlying yellow Carla did, but with deep red fissures that felt like determination. Hovering around the edges were small ponds of blue, heavily speckled with jagged black cyclones that spun off one another and careened around like pinballs. For a woman who was so outwardly neutral in appearance, her head was a controlled vortex of activity. Dex Morneau, meet the troglodytes. Carla's introduction feebly poked through the tense atmosphere. When I muttered, Carla, jeez, the gent standing in front of me smiled and waved away my implied apology. He was somewhere in his 70s, with wispy gray hair that hung to his chin. He wore a pair of sweatpants and a sweater that looked to be about three sizes too big, the bones of his wide shoulders poking the material as he moved. It's not considered a slight if it's literal, and we ignore the sarcastic implication. Ha! I like that. That's exactly what Carla is. A sarcastic implication. Carla hadn't moved, even though I was following her stepfather inside, and her mother was walking toward her. I could see her eyes widen, and felt her pleading with me over her mother's shoulder to somehow ease her away from the situation. I wasn't clear on what their past troubles were, but this didn't feel like one of those times where you jump in and save someone. It felt like one of those times you had to let them jump off the high board without cheering from the side to see if they had the strength to do it, even if the only audience they had was themselves. Inside, the man introduced himself as Mel, and he had a quietly intense personality, genuinely interested in communication and did it well. There was a sense of pride as he described his home. Maintains a constant 65 to 70 degrees year-round. Got the doors scrounging around thrift shops and Goodwill. Stripped the aluminum we didn't need. Sold it for scrap metal. Floors are recycled oak. Pull in about 100 gallons of water from the dehumidifiers every day. And we pump it outside to water the garden. I stared at the enormous lighting fixture that hung off an industrial chain dangling from the ceiling's midpoint to about ten feet above us. It was a mass of reclaimed junk, roughly shaped into a ball. Hubcaps, car parts, bicycle wheels, all entwined with what must have been hundreds of white stringed lights, like they use on Christmas trees. The old man looked up, noting my attention to the lighting fixture. That one was fun to make. Long walks over a period of time to collect everything. Got out of gardening duty a lot. He leaned in, and even though Carla and her mother had remained outside, he whispered, I hate gardening. 
absolutely hate it. Mel told me there was a spring nearby, which fed the crack in the floor, about three inches across and five inches deep, and ran the length of one side of the living area. It was near enough to the wall. They'd made the small island of rock on the other side a large flower pot that lorded over a goldfish pool fed by the spring. I stood and watched the hundreds of fish lazily swim around. This is something, Mel. If I lived here, I could sit and watch these fish all day. He nudged me with his elbow. Sometimes I do. Then he pointed across the room. Wait till you see the ant farm. The farm in question amounted to what looked in size and shape like a flat screen television hanging on one of the rock walls above a kitchen area. What it actually was, was an entire ecosystem happening between two huge pieces of glass that were sealed together with about a half inch between them, filled halfway up with sand. There were a few flowers and a piece of fern growing like a mini garden out of the surface of the sand, making it appear as if you were staring at a cross section of earth. I got up close and watched the ants march their merry way through cleverly designed tunnels. The austerity of it would have had Ayn Rand moistening on sight. I caught Mel staring out at Carla and her mother. She's off her meds. It's a cyclical thing with her. Every six months or so. His voice trailed off and we watched the women having a discussion. I didn't like how Carla's face looked. I'd seen that face. It was her protective mask. She was taking it all in, whatever her mother was saying, and stuffing it way down inside. I didn't know much about schizophrenia, but the one thing I did know was that going off medication in such cases was rarely a good thing. Mel touched my shoulder. Let me show you something. Carla offered me a blank stare. Her mother was repotting a plant on her knees next to her daughter, using her hands to move soil from a bag into a large clay pot. It looked to me like an act of desperation, the way she was shaking her head and squinting as she tossed each handful into the pot. I followed Mel around to what amounted to an alleyway between two large rocks where he opened a rickety wooden gate at its entrance. What lay beyond the door was nothing short of inspiring. I immediately thought of the children's book, The Secret Garden. Flowering vines ran up both sides of the neighboring rock formations and met at a latticework of rough tree branches that served as a roof. The sheer volume of different kinds of flowers and growth was in stark contrast to the flat land and rock surrounding it. At the back of the tunnel was a chicken coop containing six chickens and a tabby cat lounging on the wood plank ladder that led from the top of the coop down one side, presumably for the birds to access the garden at their leisure. Water burbled from a standard garden hose sticking out of a hole cut in the rock. This is what Mona does. This is who she is. It's easy to forget what someone has to offer when they're carrying on a conversation with someone who doesn't exist outside the confines of their own head. He shrugged and sat down on an upturned bucket. The paranoia, detachment, catatonic periods, depression. I think of Mona off the meds 
as the rock in the Sisyphean tail, bowling over herself. Mona on the meds is someone else. A hell of a lot easier for me to deal with, but she's miserable. She is cognizant of her psychosis, particularly when she's medicated. She sees it as the natural, albeit risky process of her psyche, coping with a world that isn't sustainable for her. When it gets really bad, I fight until she gets back on the meds. But eventually, we always end up back here, swimming through the rough waters of her symptoms until it's time for me to throw her a life jacket. This is our life, and we're okay with it. But I know we couldn't live it anywhere else. What's going on out there now is stress-induced. I know it's a horrible thing to say, but they can't be in each other's lives, not on a regular basis. I can see no way it benefits either of them. They just don't comprehend one another on any meaningful level. It's sad, but it is what it is. Mel didn't seem like the nut job Carla made him out to be, but maybe her version of him was colored by how far he allowed her obviously mentally ill mother to float into the deep end before he tossed out that life jacket. When we walked back around to the front of the cave, Carlo was sitting in the passenger seat of the car and her mother was still on her knees, packing the soil around a newly planted cactus flower. She didn't acknowledge our presence when Mel and I passed on our way to the car. I leaned down and spoke to Carla through the window. You okay? She nodded and wiped tears from her face. Mel bent over and patted her knee through the window. I'll go get those boxes. You want them all or just the ones with the papers? Carla watched her mother as she spoke. I better get them all. I don't know if I'll be back. When Mel went inside to retrieve the boxes, I opened the passenger door. Come here for a minute. I walked Carla over to the garden, opened the gate, nudged her inside, and stood behind her as she took it all in. Carla, I don't know what your mother is or isn't, but it took something remarkable to create this. She did this despite whatever inner turmoil she had to battle while bringing it to life. Or maybe too spited, hell I don't know. But if you need something to take home with you, let this be it. 